Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. For this episode, we interviewed urban farmers from across Chicago, along with a mutual aid organization that stocks its sidewalk fridges with fresh produce from some of these same farms. The history of urban farming in Chicago is the history of disinvestment and resistance to disinvestment. At the turn of the last century, much of the land on the south side was still farmland. Over the next 40 years, dense housing for European immigrant workers employed in the steel industry spread across the land, while half a million black people migrated to Chicago fleeing racist terror in the south. White Chicago homeowners responded to the Great Migration by installing neighborhood racial covenants, and banks denied black people mortgages and loans in certain neighborhoods in a racist practice called redlining. Once these practices were challenged by neighborhood groups and held up in court, white flight began to drain the south and west sides of Chicago of infrastructure and capital. Over the next half a century, the city of Chicago concentrated development and investment on the loop and the affluent north side, while neglecting the south and west sides. Years of disinvestment Mass incarceration, deindustrialization, and the foreclosure crisis led to the demolitions of thousands of homes and buildings. Much of this land was seized by the city, and today, Chicago owns approximately 10,000 vacant lots, heavily concentrated on the south and west sides. Many of these lots have sat vacant for 20 years or more, until a movement of black and brown farmers began to remediate and heal the land. The practice of urban farming challenges the priorities of the city's political class, who keep awarding the Chicago Police Department more and more funding while so many residents suffer from food apartheid. Grassroots and autonomous production not only reclaims the land, but facilitates community survival, organization, and further struggles. First on the episode, we speak with Alberto from the Reclaiming Our Roots Garden in Gage Park. The garden sits on a parcel of formerly vacant land located two blocks away from the Amazon DIL-3 delivery warehouse. Parcels are how the government makes land legible for taxes and commodification. Gardening without permission is illegible to the city and supports a set of values inherently at odds with the world of Amazon and Chicago's city government structure. Here he is. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Alberto Rodriguez, uh, Chichimeca native, pronouns he, they. I'm an urban grower, artist, poet, many different things. I'm situated right now in the southwest side of Chicago, doing land bag work, land justice work, uh, guerrilla style gardening. I'm organizing out of 
GPLXE, which is Gigpar Latinx console. And I run a community garden, community garden program initiative called Reclaiming Our Roots. So the neighborhood that I'm from, um, Gage Park, is predominantly labeled as you know Latinx or Latino, Latina, which in reality that means um, in reality the population of of people living in Gage Park is what I like to call um, displaced Indigenous peoples, peoples who have migrated from their place of origin into what is now Gage Park in so-called Chicago. The majority population right now is. Um, yeah, like I said, the space indigenous people or Mexicans, if you want to call it that way. It wasn't always like this. I think Gage Park has a like deep history, just people moving in and out. So back around the, uh, the civil rights movement, it was predominantly white during that time. Uh, meaning that the people that occupied this, the, the population of Gage Park, around Marquette Park, Gage Park, this area right here, was predominantly a Polish, Polish population. And things started changing during the civil rights movement. A lot of people don't know this history. It's it's obscured. It's it's hidden. Yet, uh, you know, we we know that during the civil rights movement, a lot of our black brothers and sisters, relatives were uh, moving in to the neighborhood. And as they were moving in, you know, there was this dynamic of uh, a lot of pushback from these white folks who, you know, they, they didn't want their population to change. They wanted to, you know, stay predominantly white and majority Polish. So yeah, they didn't, they didn't want their population to change. So obviously there was a lot of like pushback from the white population, but there was also a lot of resistance from a predominantly black population. And yeah, we had the, uh, the, the opportunity to, when I say we, I mean, people, the folks in GPLXC, we had the opportunity to get access to some images from old Gage Park, images that I depict the predominantly black resistance to displacement from our black relatives. We, there was a lot of like, uh, a lot of those those images that we saw of, of our black relatives uh, protesting, being head to head with predominantly white population, and additionally, you know, Martin Luther King uh, marched through our neighboring uh, neighborhood, through the park known as Marquette Park during the Civil Rights Movement, and you know, there's a reason why you know Martin Luther King decided to march through here, right? Again, there was like a lot of dynamics between this white population and this predominantly uh, black resistance. And Martin Luther King came, you know, he said that Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the cities that he know that he that he visited and that he uh, uh, marched in. And even Martin Luther King during that time, you know, he was met with uh, a lot of resistance uh, from this Polish community, uh, predominantly white community. Not sure exactly, you know, if they were Polish, but, you know, that's, there's little things that I hear passed down. So he was met with uh, this white population with folks who used to paint Nazi signs all over Marquette Park, folks who used to write publicly saying that uh, the black population wasn't allowed in this area. So, so yeah, so Gage Park was predominantly white, transitioned through resistance to a predominantly black neighborhood. And then eventually, you know, um, throughout, throughout that, like that journey, um, a lot of uh, uh, brown folks started moving in. And that's where we're, where, where we're at now. Uh, that's that's a little bit about about Gage Park, and it's been like that. Right now, it's it's predominantly brown folks, displaced folks who were forced to migrate, and a portion of them of the neighborhood is black. So yeah, that's a little bit about a little bit about Gage Park and kind of like the demographics of where we're at now. What does it feel to be in that area with that legacy of of racism and that legacy of resistance to the racism? Realizing that there's been like resistance throughout throughout the the making of what is now known as Gage Park. 
and integrating what we're doing into the resistance movement against the patriarch, against uh, white supremacy. I think, you know, it's important to kind of, uh, for us to honor the history of resistance in Gage Park through continuing to uh, fight, you know, and resist white supremacy now. And for us in, in the work that we're doing, uh, the way that, that we honor and continue that, that work of, of resistance and that work towards like liberation, towards a liberated future. We do that through guerrilla style gardening, you know, uh, which is an anti-colonial practice to reclaiming public territory, uh, territory that's either abandoned or that has certain stakeholders, you know, like certain corporations, certain uh, development companies under a certain name, continuing the legacy of resistance engaged park by re- re- reoccupying and reclaiming these, these public territories and using these spaces to, to grow food and to teach about how to grow your own food, teach about, you know, the history of, of land back, uh, um, and also to, you know, remember that, you know, our ancestors are folks of land and folks who have a tremendous, like, knowledge of not even knowledge but they they embody like this this yeah they have this embodied knowledge about the land and the way the land works and stuff like that so for yeah. us honoring all that is 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 a, is a way of continuing to yeah dismantle white supremacy colonialism everything that you know the folks before us engaged part were were resistance and resistant and fighting i've been learning to grow food as, as i went through the process of making the garden before that, my father and my mother used to uh, just throw little hints here and there of, you know, certain trees that they see, certain plants that they see as we like, you know, walk through parks. It wasn't this, okay, this is who we are. This is corn. This is how you grow corn. It wasn't like this, like knowledge that was passed down or that it was engraved in our like family dynamic. And, and that, there's a reason for that, right? Like there's a reason why my birth givers and certain elders around my community don't see that as a primary thing to pass on, right? Uh, because again, you know, we were forced away from that lifestyle to accommodate and to assimilate another way of life over here, which is, you know, I'm talking about like here in the States, right? And in that process, you know, in the process of assimilation, this, this traditional ecological knowledge that my parents carried and had over there in their in their birthland, it eventually becomes like this very abstract thing that doesn't hold value. And yeah, and you know, throughout the process of making these uh, and reclaiming and remembering my, my relationship to land, I'm still learning uh, a lot of this traditional like ecological knowledge that my parents have, that some of my mentors have passed down, how to grow uh, certain crops, how to take care of them, right? It really had to be, I think, a very conscious journey and learning on how to grow all this and care for all this. So yeah, the, the journey... I think that's 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 the thing right there. Had, instead of uh, being this like engraved part of our community, it really had to be this like very conscious and intentional learning of these practices and these ways of life. So the way that we um, look for terrenos, tierra, land for us to uh, nourish and to be in relationship with, we we really focus on like hyper local observations and hyper local, uh, yeah, yeah, very hyper local observations, meaning that like. When we first started seeking spaces to to care for, right before the pandemic started, right? That's when we started seeking for spaces, right? So right before the pandemic started, we really focused on the neighborhood that most of the people live in, whether you have a relationship because that's where you go and play, you know, to the parks or to the train tracks, to the abandoned lots, right? That's where you go and play or the relationship. And in, in at least for me, it was that I, I grew up there after moving from Little Village. 
in the, I grew up in the zip code 60632, right? From fifth grade up to uh, my first year in college, university. That was my relationship to, to Gage Park. And other folks seem similar. That's what they, you know, will go to youth groups or spend most of their time um, either at work, right? So we were intentional, right? Because, you know, that's we have a, a connection, a story to, to Gage Park. Um, so we stuck to the zip code, 60632. And the process was really like grabbing a VHS camera in like late winter and going with uh, a young person, another young person from the neighborhood, Balanima Eduardo, um, going with him in my car, just going block to block, right? And any possibility, really, any possibility, any space that we saw, the sought to be a possibility for us to create uh, gardens and growing food, like we, we will get down the car, we will start filming, we will start, you know, analyzing and observing the, the soil, the people that lived around, the way that the sun moved in the specific spot that we were observing. We're just allowing ourselves to be creative and to imagine how different public spaces can provide us um, what we're looking for. In this case, a green space for a guerrilla garden. So we, we didn't we didn't take into consideration if it, if it was owned. We chose to not ask for permission only because that's a huge bureaucracy that can slow us down. Plus, the way that we are seeking to reclaim land is literally just showing up and you know doing the doing the land work. As a sign of a of a you know different possibilities for a liberated future, a future where you know we can think creatively about how we use and move spaces and move through spaces in the city. Um, so yeah, at the end, you know, me and Eduardo ended up with like eight spaces in the zip code six zero six three two, and we started narrowing them down to see which one would be more beneficial, which one's closer to what. And we had two options at the end. One was this apartment complexes, which is on, on, on like fifty first and Landell. They have a lot of vacant land. Um, they have a lot of vacant land, and also, you know, they're developers. They are building condos right by the Orange Line on 51st in Lando. And we thought, you know, if we have a garden here in this public lot owned by these developers, right? We can have a garden, design the garden uh, based on our cultural values, and halt, you know, the developers from building their complexes, their apartments there. Right. So that was an option right there. The only the only issue with that space was that there was also some bureaucracy because the office where these folks or the manager of the of these apartments work was right next to the potentiality of a green space. Right. So for this, it was it'll be a, a little bit difficult for us to feel safe and grow food freely and have fun and enjoy our time there. Right. It will be because we'll be constantly in, in in battle with or in resistance with the managers or constantly being policed. Right. So for this part, we did end up having to ask permission to see if, if they were still interested in us for us to grow our food there. I think it, it gets complex because the owners of the, I guess, of the condos weren't really the owners of the territory. I think the territory was owned by somebody else who kind of lends the land to these, the company that has the apartment complexes. The bureaucracy was there, existed there too. And I, we also thought that spot would have been good because the neighbor that's right next to that a piece of land, they were already growing food. So we were like, mm, this is a possibility. There's somebody already here growing food. Just that they have an easier way of doing, an easier way. They can get away with it easier because they live right next door. So we, we saw that spot was just too complicated. Um, they eventually said, you know, they didn't have permission. Um, so the spot that we're in now, which is like a block from two schools, a block from the big, the biggest park in Gage Park, which is uh, it's called Senka Park. So it's it's a place where you know after school a lot of young people walk through there. Uh, so it's very visible, but yet hidden inside the neighborhood. And it's away from any political office, from any uh, Chicago Police Department. 
so it seemed like a, a spot that we could feel safe, you know, practice our traditional ways, or at least remember our traditional ways, grow our own food is visible and invisible at the same time, which is what we want, you know? So yeah, we, we, we settled for this, for this place where we now grow our food and the community has been very open. And for the majority part, they've been very helpful, uh, exchanging seats with us when we're not there and they, they see what some of us, you know, go back to the spot, they come and they greet us and they tell us what we call a chisme or the gossip of the neighborhood, telling us like, you know, all oh, these people that come here and visit the garden at this time. And all that is valuable knowledge for us because one, we know that space is being used when we're not there. You know, we have eyes on the street, which are kind of like, like a protective force field for the garden when like, you know, we're not physically there. So overall, the, the experience with our neighbors have been beautiful, ever growing. And now that like things are opening up, hopefully, um, you know, we can start building more relationships uh, in a more intentional way. Uh, but we, we, I don't know, you know, maybe we can really imagine how to do that because of the Delta variant that's happening. And if it wasn't for our neighbors, we wouldn't have water, really. Um, water is is everything when it comes to, to uh, taking care of the land, right? Especially during these times where it doesn't rain like if it rains it's not enough if it rains is uh it rains every like four weeks and you know that it's not enough and also seems like right now it's not enough to even capture rainwater so yeah so we we are blessed that the neighbor right next to our space can lend us their water hose and you know that can support us in growing our our crops and stuff like that the name of the garden is called reclaiming our roots so a little description, a little image about our, our green space, about our guerrilla gardening. So it's divided into four sections. There's a, there's a center, a core, and then we have four sections around it, right? Each, each section has its, its purpose. Um, each, each section is like ever evolving, ever changing, because you know we always end up learning more about how to work the land and how to be in right relationship with it advice from mentors so that, i think that's the first thing about the garden is that it's, it's ever-changing you know it's ever-changing and currently the design that we have at the garden we have a space uh kind of in the back by the alley first where cars park right you know i think that was that was an important part for us uh it might not seem important um but it really is uh, because there was already people there that used to park right in the space that we're in right now and since we are not, uh, we don't have, we don't come with this conquistador colonial energy. Uh, we really believe in, in sharing space, right? And, and if somebody was already using the space for parking, right, we want to honor that um, and continue just having uh, that relationship, even if we don't see each other, right? Because we don't see the people that park there. So, you know, we left a little space in the back for folks who park. Um, and we kind of made like a line with tree trunks. So that's the back part. Right in front of, by the alley, there's a section that we called uh, urban, or urban milpa. A milpa is basically means an association of crops, of food, of plants, of herbs, an association of plants that work together and complement each other. And, uh, and this knowledge of complementary plants is, is years old, like it's years and years old of, of ancestors, of relatives uh, practicing this for ages and ages and millennia. And I don't even know how long it goes back. You know, they, our ancestors figured out that there's some crops that grow, that work well together. And this year we did kind of like a test um, to see what works here. 
So right in the, your main, uh, I don't want to say main crop because they're all important and they're all valuable, right? Because it's a circular uh, system. So there's three crops mainly, right? Mainly people do three crops in your milpa, the, the traditional three crops, and sometimes they have more. So the traditional three, three crops that are in our over milpa are maize, corn, calabaza, squash, and frijoles, beans. So those are, those are what some folks call the, the three sisters. And at times, right? Some folks will, and the borders around, because it's like a square, right? It's a square. Some folks will add maybe like chiles or tomatoes around the perimeter of your milpa. I haven't done a lot of research in this because we want do want to try this more. But it seems like if you do have enough of these crops in the border surrounding this your milpa, my hypothesis is that these crops can, tomatoes and chiles can protect what's inside of your, your milpa. So that's something we're testing out this year. Um, and we're going to continue to test out and like kind of like add more, maybe add more plants in the borders to kind of protect what's inside. So right now we do have a few tomatoes and a few chiles. And inside we have our corn, which is a food that serves so many purposes. Like maize can be used for so many things in so many different ways. The leaves of the corn itself, the stalk, can be used to wrap around, to wrap tamales, to make tamales. When dried up, you can use some folks use it for ceremony, um, to smoke tobacco, to roll tobacco, and use tobacco for ceremony, uh, for ritual, and even the the hairs that the corn grows, right? That the corn itself grows the hairs, that can be used for teas, and that's actually that's part of the alkaline diet or the alkaline lifestyle. The the hairs of the of the corn, uh, which they say is super healthy and super good for you. I mean, the whole corn is, to be honest. And, you know, some, sometimes we uh, make tortillas out of the corn. We make dough or masa out of, out of corn. Uh, has so many purposes, right? It's, it's really is like a mega food, a superfood, if you want to put it that way. If, but it only is a superfood, a mega food. Corn is only a superfood, quote unquote, a mega food, because of our ancestors trying so many different things and learning so many different things and being in right relationship with the corn that the corn uh, was able to transform herself into like so many different things for us. Um, so that's one crop. The other one we have frijol. Frijol wraps around, if you have trellis beans, they wrap around your, your corn and they give you beans. And at the same time, the science behind that is also that they return nitrogen to your soil. Uh, and that's important because corn is such a, it depends a lot on nitrogen. And then we have like a cover crop, right? A cover crop to avoid erosion, which is our squash. Squash uh, is also a food. That's one of my favorite foods. It's one that reminds me of, of my mom because she makes a lot of, she makes this like good dish, this very good platillo, which is like calabazas with corn, with spices, with cheese, and it's just delicious. So squash has a lot of value for me and, um, so we, we grew some squash. Uh, this year we mixed half of our milpa with summer squash and half of it with our winter squash. The winter squash specifically serves as a ground cover because it, it, you know, it crawls through the floor. And it also, you know, when you touch a leaf of a squash, it hurts. Like it, it doesn't hurt, but like it feels odd in your hand, right? Like it's spiky. So that kind of protects you, protects your, that, that space from, uh, you know, certain animals that are looking for food. And sometimes that's good because, you know, uh, you, you're able to protect your food a little bit longer, right? Uh, in some tradition, in some indigenous people, some indigenous peoples, you know, they make sure that they put enough seeds to feed all, all of the ecosystem, right? So like if, if uh, some animals do come to your milpa and 
make their way through the binds of the squash and they get to your corn, that's fine. Because you know, we some in some in some folks the they sort seeds enough for the animals too. Yeah, that's that's that space that we have there. And then we of course right next to it, we have our compost area, our area where we compost, where we try to build our, our soil. Uh, where we have like a bunch of tree trunks, a bunch of mulch. And that's our little area there where we kind of like sometimes come and dump our, our compost from home or stuff that we find on the streets sometimes. You know, that's where we go and dump, and dump it. And, and that area is always changing. Some of us want to make it into like a little bit more recreational area. Like maybe still have compost, but add a space for like recreational purposes, maybe like a place for rest, a place for uh for picnics for you know for family to get together or maybe just for children to play around so that that's the few ideas that we have for that section right in front of that we have our fire pit uh where we gather as a community friends and like some of the neighbors tell me sometimes other people go and just hang out there uh a place again to for just to chill and relax and just be yourself and be in relationship with the fire and de-stress from the heavy that you know capitalism throws at us and that colonialism uh, wants us to forget uh, which is joy and which is making space to connect with like the natural elements which is fire in this case i remember one time we we had a, a bonfire and some of my friends came over uh, a lot of them are organizers a lot of them are activists a lot of them are just you know people who have enthusiasm for the night sky and one of my friends brought a telescope because we were just gonna observe the stars that night and have a good time. So, you know, so that's kind of like why that space exists. Some of the young people that that uh, are, I'm in relationship with right now call the space El Circulo de la Vida or the Circle of Life, which I think is beautiful. <laughs> um, and then right next to that is another ever-changing space. Uh, we had our campus bin there, uh, but we just took that down and we made a bed there to kind of grow food next year. Uh, but right now in that bed right next to the fire pit we have uh, just uh, nitrogen fixers a bunch of like different legumes growing from there um, they're going to stay there throughout the winter and then you know we just chop and drop next spring um, and then we have a few boxes where we're growing potatoes we're growing some medicinal plants in that area and the last area that i'm going to mention is this, this this other area that's like one of the trickiest probably areas to grow food so all throughout the space that we're in the soil is so different like it changes like it's not stagnant in all the areas. Like there's some areas that are very clay. There's some areas that are uh, very hard to dig that once it rains, it just like, it gets super stiff and hard. And there are areas where they're just like super soft and you could just like dig your shovel right through it and you'll be fine. And there's just some in-between areas, right? So the soil uh, dynamics is very, there's, it's, I would say it's a spectrum um, because it's a lot of different soils in the space that we're in. So this little area that's kind of like in front of the milpa, um, that area, is a difficult area. It's a hard area right now to grow food. Uh, we tried to, uh, growing daikon radish this year in the area because those daikon radish, you know, go deep into the soil. But I guess it got too tight to the point where the daikon radish wasn't is, is not able to kind of like you know grow underneath the soil and break the soil. And that area right there, kind of, we designed it like a Mandela keyholes and all this stuff that you know we learned from some of our mentors. But it's been a hard area to grow food, and you know. We, we are kind of taking that into consideration this year and trying to like uh, figure out like, you know, different practices or different methods that we can use to kind of regenerate that spot. Um, maybe throw a bunch of uh, nitrogen fixers, a bunch of like legumes, legume plants, legume seeds into the hard areas and, you know, just continue to chop and drop for a year or two and, or maybe just turn it into a pollinator garden for now. 
And, you know, we'll see what that does to the soil as the years pass. I'm not sure, but that area is an area that we're observing. We do have an area, uh, we call it, it's, it's our ancestor memorial space or a capilla where, you know, we come, one, it serves as a shelter when it rains. So we've, we've, uh, we've done our programs inside there while it rains and it was super chill, super nice. Uh, it also serves as an area to honor our relatives, honor those, those ancestors, those folks who have passed and remember them, you know, through art, through photographs, through ofrendas or altars. And that's what the space exists for a little bit there, the capilla. And, you know, a huge shout out to the artists from the neighborhoods because they really beautified and made the, the capilla like pop out from doing graffiti and, you know, putting the name of reclaiming our roots to doing art that depicts our resistance and also to drawing native plants in the capilla. I think that also has beautified it. The lot that we are in is the size of two homes. And yeah, the dynamics of the soil are just so interesting because... I mean, I don't know, the ruins that were probably left behind when the house that was there before 10 years ago was taken down by the city, right? A lot of the neighbors are the folks that have been in, in place for a couple of years now, before we were there, said that a lot of the ruins were left underground. So a lot of stuff, maybe like some floor tiles, some bricks, we haven't found any pipes. So that's good. All that concrete um, has you know, just probably submerged to, to the ground. And everything else was just, you know, taken away by the city and just cleaned up to whatever they think cleaned up is because they didn't do a good job. Um, yeah, that has left our soil with like such a interesting ground where, like I said, like there's places where it's nice and soft and tolerable and um, we could work with where there's areas where you really have to break the soil constantly. It's like a, almost like you have to be there often to if you're growing a, a crop there you have to be there often and just kind of like digging around it right to make it soft so that way it doesn't stiff up i think the future at, of green spaces and gauge park for us is again digging into the wisdom of our ancestors because our ancestors didn't stay in the same spot for a prolonged period of time right some of our ancestors used to move right hyperlocal migration right hyperlocal migration from spot to spot changing the territories where uh, they would grow food moving their milpa from from a certain spot to a spot a couple miles down, sometimes longer. So they understood and they embodied the idea of migration and movement and how important that was to regenerate the land, right? For us, digging into and sitting with that wisdom and not only using that wisdom as, as a way to regenerate the soil, but also using it as a, a political strategy to, right, we have this one uh, reclaimed territory engaged park right that we're in now and that we can slowly continue to work on it and transform it uh an idea that we have there is eventually transform it into a food forest slowly a slow transition right and food forests you know they are almost almost self-sustaining right they they need some of your assistance at the beginning right of course yeah not as much as if you're growing annuals right tomato plants other stuff that need a lot of care and a lot of observation so digging into that, that uh, the wisdom of, of hyperlocal movement that some of our ancestors have embodied and seeking another place where we can do the same thing, right? Grow food, um, grow our corn, make a heaven for pollinators, for other animals, for us people, for the community, and continue that that movement slowly, right? Because there are there are a couple more uh, empty spaces that can be utilized to grow food. And the statement there for us is we we are envisioning a, a liberated future where you know folks have access to their foods. 
that they use almost every day to cook their food. So embodying that wisdom of, of hyper-local hyper movement and reclaiming more public territories, right? Patiently and slowly, intentionally is, you know, it's what we're looking to do uh, in the near future. By the near future, I mean probably next season. <laughs> I mean, probably next season, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, using that method and, you know, transforming an area from, you know, a garden, a food garden to like a food forest in the area that we're in now and then going somewhere else and maybe grow our annuals there for a bit and also grow some annuals in our first spot, right, vice versa and continue to seek more spaces and reclaim more, more territories to continue challenging the idea of like land ownership and who owns the land and who gets to do what with the land. Uh, because, you know, we know that we're on land that has, that exists through broken treaties and uh, a way that, you know, that we, that we are looking to, you know, integrate ourselves in the land bag movement is in this way. As long as the land is being used and in continuous movement, and then we have, you know, different pop-up locations around where we're at, it'll be difficult for developers to displace us, you know? Yeah, I tell people, I tell, I tell like my, my friends, uh, some people that I'm close with that it's a bitter, bittersweet feeling, you know, because we are, you know, these, these ancestors, these future ancestors that are leaving this legacy here now for others to follow in the future. And it's bitter because, you know, it's a lot of labor. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of like emotional and psychological healing and transformation that one needs to undergo. So it's a bittersweet feeling, yet it's very exciting to be part of the food movement here in Chicago. Up next, we interview The Love Fridge, a mutual aid project that supports locally stocked and accessed refrigerators on Chicago sidewalks and in people's front yards. Several urban farms regularly stock The Love Fridges with their fresh organic produce, and we talked to Velma about why that's so important. I'm Velma. I help out with the Love Fridge slash organize with the Love Fridge. Uh, my pronouns is she, her, hers. Um, and I live in the Ashburn neighborhood, which is southwest of the city. And a little bit about what I do at the Love Fridge is everything. We kind of do everything. It's, it's a mutual aid. So we all collectively work together to do all the tasks and every task, kind of like the logistical points of like how to keep it running in the background. But obviously our volunteers are what keeps it running people who clean the fridges and stock the fridges and such. So La Fridge is a mutual aid rooted in food rescue, food apartheid. Yeah, we're just all food stuff, everything food. Uh, what that means is we put down fridges in different neighborhoods across the city and we feed people either through people putting food in the fridges from who are in that community or food rescuing with other mutual aids and such. That's what we do. We put fridges down and stop fridges to help feed people in the city. The Love Fridge got started exactly a year ago in July is when we first put our first fridge down in Little Village, which is our flagship called the Love Shack. And we got started with someone named Ramon. He saw the same thing in Brooklyn and they had a fridge giving out free food to folks. And this was in the height of the pandemic and everyone was at home and people were suffering because there's no food, right? And we were like, the problem is already bad, but with this pandemic, it's even worse, right? You have black and brown neighborhoods who don't have fresh food or grocery stores and a mile radius. And so Ramon reached out to a couple people he knew. And from there, it just, it sparked what we now call the Love Fridge. Urban agriculture is super important within the Love Fridge, right? Because we don't only want to supply good food, right? We want to supply fresh food, right? Something that the community doesn't really get within 
where they're at, a lot of corner stores don't have fresh food, right? But that's the closest thing to them. And so a lot of people within the organization knew certain people who so happened to be within the urban agriculture in Chicago. Um, one of them being Urban Growers Collective, right? They were one of the first people who reached out to us to say, hey, we can stock these fridges. And we still have a partnership with them a year later, but they're one of our biggest supporters and is always like, hey, can you guys come pick up some food and put them in the fridges or they'll put them in the fridges themselves. But ultimately, urban aquaculture is what's keeping a lot of us alive, right? Because it's fresh food. I guess that's all I have to say. I mean, it's not, it's super scarce, right? So to even give opportunity to have that in the fridge is huge. I wonder, like, does the Love Fridge Sheet itself as part of the lineage of like food not bombs i mean like some and food not bombs are also like autonomous like each chapter makes decisions that make the most sense for them and some you know use like reclaimed food from dumpsters and things like that that we know is like perfectly safe but the expiration date might be you know expired or produce is getting thrown away because it's lumpy or weird looking and it doesn't sell but the love fridge has made a decision to supply really fresh like just picked fresh food that's like clean and like beautiful and has you know passes all of the different like regulations and stuff like that and like can you talk about the ways that those decisions were made and like why they were made the reason why we want such fresh foods and like pristine looking foods as some would say is because if you if I wouldn't eat it I wouldn't expect someone else to eat it right there's no reason why we should put food that looks like someone was an afterthought, right? No one's an afterthought when they come to that fridge. That fridge is a place where they can feel safe to get food and food that looks as well as a food that someone who has a ton of money can get, right? And I think that was an important thing, a distinction for us was, let's not let this be an afterthought, right? Don't give someone your leftovers. Like that's not what the fridge is for. The fridge is to sustain folks in any capacity. And if that means getting food that looks pristine, that's what we're going to do. Altogether, we have about 30 fridges, which is a lot. Uh, I think we have the most uh, within the like community fridges in this country. So it's a lot. But luckily, we were able to have hosts, hosted people who say yes to like wanting to put a fridge on their property. Um, and majority of them are properties. So they're, they're theirs. It's not the city's property. And so since it's on private property, we're able to put a fridge down without getting any getting second looks by anyone. <laughs> but the power source is from that host. So they they agree to power up the fridge. And sometimes they ask for a stipend, which we give them. And if they need to cover that cost of how much electricity the fridge will take. And sometimes they just say no. They just want to support the fridge and do electricity themselves. But that's how we power it. And it's all because of the host, really. The future of the love fridge is that... There's two types of features, right? The ultimate hope is that food scarcity and food apartheid is totally erased, right? That's the hope. The second one is that even if food apartheid, food scarcity continues to happen, is that those of us in organization now or in the mutual aid now could eventually leave a new generation to keep and uphold this community leverage idea. And I think within the Love Fridge, we often like have interviews with young students who reach out to us, one, because they love the idea and they want to get a part of it. And two, they're like, hey, this is so great. How can we as like high school students help keep this fridge going, right? And I think continue to talk to the futures, 
generations about how important it is to make sure food scarcity isn't food scarcity, but if it is still food scarcity later down the line, how to manage a fridge, how to clean a fridge, how to make these relationships with farmers, with vendors who quote unquote want to help us um, get food in these fridges, right? And teaching them the skills to do that when we no longer can keep sustaining it. One thing I think a lot of folks get confused about the love fridge is that we're like a nonprofit or a 5013C. And I just want everyone to know that's not the case. <laughs> we're a mutual aid and we're truly rooted in community and helping our community, giving back to our community, sustaining our community all together. And I think that's important when thinking about the love fridge, right? We don't need money. We just want your support for these fridges, right? If that means cleaning fridges, please do that. If that means stocking fridges, please do that. Continue to help these fridges because this is a lot of people's, how they get their dinner, how they get their breakfast, how they get their lunch, right? And is, if we keep sustaining that, we'll be in our right place. Next, we talk with two farmers from Otis Farm in Chicago's Back of the Yards neighborhood. We'll share more of their interview in a later episode, but for now, they talk to us about the challenges of accessing water to sustain the project of growing fresh, healthy food in the city. Um, this farm has been going here for about four years. Mm -hmm. um, it was started by Steve Hughes, who uh, used to live at the Let Us Breathe Collective across the street, which is uh, attached to Sukasa, mm -hmm. where we get our water. And um, yeah, Steve's a lifelong resident of this neighborhood. He's um, basically fell ill. He had um, some strokes, uh, unfortunately, at the end of last summer. And uh, I've been a volunteer here for a couple years. And so we're in touch regularly. We talked two days ago. Um, talk all the time and we kind of have taken over stewarding the land in collaboration with some of the breathing room folks over there. And they let us is the water, which is very helpful. I mean, if you had un unlimited resources, if you had access to the fire hydrant, <laughs> <laughs> what would you... The one that's right there, you mean? Hello, yeah, I see what, you every day when I pass by. I know, <laughs> yeah, what would you, what would you do if you had, if you had the support of the city, if you had mm. support, if you had unlimited resources to water? Wow. Um, what, how would you spend your time differently? The first thing I would do is have a big celebration, which is why there are these custodial caps, mm -hmm. these extra $1,000 caps on a lot of the hydrants, is because uh, Richard Daly uh, was scared that people would be poisoning the water supply when they open up the fountain and enjoy the water on three 90-degree days in a row, like we're in right now. So I would just let it open and just let it explode <laughs> everywhere and invite people to enjoy that. Um, and then I would put the attachment on it and then mm -hmm. water for, I think, two days straight. Two days, 48 hours. Yeah, I don't know. Resources, build up that farm stand, get some fridge, solar panels, be able to charge stuff. Um, yeah. I think, like they were saying earlier, too, like, I think it, it just frees up so much more time to do, like, the real community engagement, the community building that we want to do. Like, it would be really nice to, yeah. like, like some other really beautiful and well-established 
farm spaces around here that have like workforce development programs. They have mm-hmm. like they get to pay their youth, mm-hmm. uh, pay ad- adults as well to come like work on the farm. Like have really well organized volunteer days. Like do some mm-hmm. really creative projects. This city-owned lot was filled with overgrown weeds for two decades. We have turned it into a farm. The city owes us money, as Mm. far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, And just in general, the water. If you have a growing project, you should be able to, at the very most, have to send an email to a city worker who then sends a plumber out and gives you the tools you need, and then you have to just go buy the hose. <laughs> they give you everything else, you buy the hose. And I think, we're even down to pay for the yeah, water. Like, I pay. understand water <laughs> is not just like available, right? And like I'm, in California, they're sent, they're selling water as like bonds now. There's like a water yeah. market yeah. now but, that yeah. can easily happen in other parts of the country, and then. Again, the people in power here. like make the legislation, and the people who use the water don't don't have the time or capacity to like pitch in what their like wish list is, for example, right? So like, just like remove the the fee for the custodial cap, like that's that's like the easiest thing to do. Okay, like, so we'll that pay would the be water it. bill yeah. monthly. The, whatever water we use, we'll pay that. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. So for you, <laughs> the policy is remove the barrier, even financially to access an agreed amount, but we're not going to pay some outrageous... They want us to pay $4,000 for renter's insurance. Up front. As a youth, for for like the right to use or something. Like we're not going to pay for the amount of water that we're pulling. Like we're not wasting water because we don't want to pay a huge water bill, right? How much, how much, how much for say a week or a month? I don't know what your season is in terms of water. What would the water be? What would your, what would a water bill look like? We would use probably at least two full tanks of those, which is like 550 gallons of water a week minimum. Oh, two of them. Yeah. So a thousand gallons, oh, a little over oh, a thousand. There's, those are 275 gallons each, so that would be like 500 gallons yeah. a week. Yeah. Or like mm-hmm. 600, about 600. 600 gallons a week. So whatever that is. Plus all the other fees. Minus all the other fees. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the wish list. <laughs> we, we would pay the city or, you know, we're going to pay our neighbor to use their water. We're fine with that. It's just this is a city-owned land that they neglected mm-hmm. and did nothing with. Mm-hmm. And if the city, or anyone for that matter, does nothing with a piece of land for two decades, they need to be removed. I don't know what to say. I just don't think it's fair. How is that fair? Other so Steve started growing food here because what somebody wanted to do something mm-hmm. and I just don't understand why it's such a big to do. We're doing them a favor. And finally, we interviewed Catatumbo Collective, an emerging immigrant queer gender nonconforming workers cooperative farm located in South Chicago, the city's most industrial neighborhood. We appreciate them being willing to talk to us while running farm errands and prepping their CSA. Here they are. My name is Irerion Sota Carrasco. I use in them pronouns. I'm one of the worker owners of Catatumbo Cooperative Farm. 
My name is Hasmina Martinez. I use they and them pronouns, and I am a co-funder of Casuma uh, Cooperative Farm. My name is Vivi Moreno. My pronouns are she, her, they, them. So I'll start with the history. Ideri was growing food for a while, like for years, and like for many, many years before Kanatumbo was even a thought, right? So they have a lot of experience in not only like gardening and farming in the city, but also teaching um, and, and doing like farming and gardening education, especially with little ones and, and youth. But I would say one of the kind of catalysts of Katatumbo was uh, Ideri has me and I going to Soul Fire Farm, um, I believe in 2017. And the three of us went to learn more about farming, just to like hone in on our, on our farming skills, to learn more, uh, to learn how to farm at a larger scale. And I think it was there that we were like, okay, how do we do this in Chicago? How do we do this in Chicago? Who do we have to talk to? And I think on the drive back, we kind of looked at each other. We're like, we can do that ourselves. Like, why are, like, who are we waiting for? And I think that that, that definitely was a moment of like, why, why do we keep kind of like acting like, like we need like all these external forces to validate what we want to do, we could just do it. So the three of us started kind of working on it, doing a lot of research. And specifically, we're, we knew that we needed a space to to work. We needed, we needed a little bit of land to work on and to just get started. And we knew that we wanted to do a cooperative just because, it, you know, even though we, we do see a lot of uh, farms that are like structured as conventional businesses, which are quite honestly like thriving too and, and giving back to their communities, we wanted to do something that was a little bit more lateral and in some ways see if the farm itself, as small as it, as it is, can like strengthen eventually the worker cooperative movement, right? That means that we had to, we are still in the process of learning, like what, do, what does the culture look like for a worker cooperative? What does making decisions collectively look like? What does it look like to, to kind of challenge power dynamics within ourselves? And, and that's, that's how we, we like to ideally uh, run the farm, right? So all of that started, I would say we officially kind of like became registered as Catatumbo in 2018. But I would say we've been in the making for a long, long time. Like I said, Ireli has been farming for a long time. Hasmin has uh, farming families in Mexico. So they have they have those roots. Um, my grandfather used to be a farmer in Venezuela too. So I think it's just us slowly, slowly coming to ourselves and, into, and in some ways returning to the land here in the United States. What does the like food infrastructure look like in Chicago? Like how does Catatumbo Co-op fit into food accessibility, food justice, um, and those concepts? I think there definitely are food apartheid zones in Chicago, a good number of them, mostly concentrated in black and brown neighborhoods. I feel like that's pretty well known. We're also following a community-supported agriculture model. This year, we got a grant to be able to subsidize all of our CSA. Um, and so in that sense, we want to make sure that we're providing food to folks who can't necessarily afford to buy like organic produce right or organic locally grown produce which tends to be a little bit higher in price because it is a lot of work um so that makes sense but we wanted to make sure it was accessible to folks especially within the community so this year when we were figuring out our csa recipients we reached out to two community organizations with south chicago which is where the land that we work on is located um and so they gave us a, a list of a couple names of families from the area who could who like would benefit and said they were interested so that's what we've been working with this past year. So I think that in that real sense of providing food and making it accessible to folks, like that's one way. I think the other way is the worker cooperative model. I think that in, in, in general, worker cooperatives are a good sort of 
building step towards getting away from capitalism. I think there's lots of ways to do that. And I think this is one intermediate step. And for me, capitalism and imperialism are really some of the things that drive a lot of the harm and have driven a lot of the harm that exists in the world. Um, and so being able to attempt to work in this in this model, I think, is just a good practice <laughs> to, to dismantling that and to coming up with something different. So there's an understanding that the work that we do is situated within the context of a history of violence, of genocide, of enslavement, you know, of, of racism. So within that context, we recognize that there's also been resistance and communities and folks and black and brown and indigenous people who have essentially wanted to thrive and live. And I mean, we're a continuation of that. Uh, just keep it sweet and short. Like we are a continuation of folks who have done that work and will continue to that work. And uh, it, it's just essential to have uh, people working with the land, on the land, and doing it collectively. And for a purpose that's not just our own, of like, yes, we want to grow food to these people, but an understanding that it's so much more than that. It's about a, a legacy, a history, it's about healing. It's about resistance. It's about political power. It's about autonomy, sovereignty. What are some of the challenges of doing this in Chicago? We have a lot of challenges. The city is inherently not for people of color, people of uh, communities of color. So there's so many growers who have issues with water access, land access, funding, technical support. And that bleeds into the work that we do, although we might not have issues with land and water access because we're with an incubator program, we still have the challenges of not having enough access to funding, not having enough technical support. And by technical support, I mean getting getting connected to a tax consultant, getting connected to a business, you know, like just business 101. And then on the... So that's one aspect, right, of like individually as a farm slash farmer, there are those challenges. And then there's the institutional challenges of uh, zoning, of uh, other issues that are not related to urban ag having an impact on the work that we do. So the perfect example is defund PGD. There's a lot of money that goes into the Chicago uh, Police Department, and that money could be directed to communities of color, and those communities of color can use that money for something such as urban agriculture, where communities of color are coming together to go in their designated area with a much more cohesive and holistic approach. That's just like a very, a very general and brief example. This year has has been quite challenging for us as Catatumbo. I think we all of us had. Um, really big, like transformational just happenings in our lives, which made it difficult to focus on the farm the way that we have in the past two seasons. I think that some of the visions for the future is, I think we see what happens when we don't have as much capacity to uh, tend to the land the way that we'd like to. Although the other side of that is that parts of the land tend to, uh, they get to rest a little bit, which is really beautiful. But some, some thoughts that we have in terms of what, what we envision for our future is taking a pause uh, from what we have been doing, not quite stopping, 
but kind of reassessing where we are at and um, and kind of getting better at growing. So it looks like, or I feel not it looks like, so we've been in conversations about continuing to grow food next year, just at a different scale, perhaps not doing anything commercial, just growing food for our, ourselves, for families. You know, if we have extra, obviously all of it, most of the things that we have extra get donated anyway. But for us to really just get really, really good at growing specific crops that we really, really like have hold dear uh, to our hearts. That, and getting to like that scientific kind of research part, the trial and error part is really hard to do when you don't have that much capacity and you're just rushing to produce, produce, produce. Right. Um, which is a little bit of where we're at right now. And so we are definitely going to take like, a, I would say, a reflection year that's going to translate to how we reflect on working with the land. I mean, in the future, I feel like the magical vision that we had is obviously being able to acquire land, have actually the time, take our time to tend to the land. But that's it's really, really hard to get there. So I'll, I'll just speak until I'll just speak for what we sort of are talking about next year. And the, again, these are just conversations. This could definitely change. But I think that this this year capacity has definitely been an issue. But I would I would like not just put that on us. I feel like this has definitely been brought on by the pandemic and the collapse of capitalism, not supporting families and us having to step in for each other, having to make really tough decisions for ourselves and for our families. And I think that all of that is connected. And I think that is why we, we've had such a challenging growing year. Even even with all of that, our farm is still really productive. There's a lot of really beautiful food that we're growing and we still get to feed families. So I think that uh, I personally feel just really grateful for everybody that has been doing a lot of work on the land and for the land to give it back to us, even when we were like, you know, not being here as much as as, as we as we were uh, in years before. So I'll stop there. So broader vision is specifically my podcast is land. They can do this work full time, you know, as as the capacity allows and are compensated. And the practical, there's also the practical side of me that in order to get there, what needs to happen, what needs to change. And part of that is that leadership, whether it's the city, whether it's advocacy organization, whether it's community elders, whoever is at the at these leadership positions and positions of power, need to start listening to growers of color and not just tokenizing them. And so what that means specifically for me is that there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of saying about we need to support growers of color, we need to support them. But how many times have we actually been at the table? How many, like, how do we, I don't, I see very few growers of color being asked to participate in meetings and policy changes. And when we do, it often gets tokenized. Listen to growers, how we work together. Otherwise, I personally feel like I'm gonna continue trying to talk about a vision that might never happen. And that sounds a little bit negative and pessimistic, but that's the reality that I hold, where it's like, yes, I have a vision, we have a vision, we have a dream. But the reality right now is that there's very few things that's actually gonna, going to help us to get there. And yeah, it's just like, how do you, how do you hold that? And it's partly that, holding that because you want to move towards this vision. We'll share links to each of these projects and how to support on our website, partisangardens.org. This episode was produced in collaboration with Jennifer Bamberg, who did the interviews and research for the show. Thank you. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. 
We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch.